Peterborough, New Hampshire, where I grew up, isn't really famous for much. Even now, it has just a population right around 6,000 people. It's quaint, but tucked in the woods hides an incredible little theater, the Peterborough Players, which provides exceptional professional performances every summer. And the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder appears frequently. The fictitious town of Grover's Corners was indeed based on Peterborough, written in another hidden gem, McDowell, a famous artist residence where Wilder stayed on a number of occasions between 1920 and 1950. In the winter, and community and student theater fills the stage of the town. All of this gave me my first glimpses of high quality acting, and I performed as a student and in community productions a few times, most infamously as a seventh grade Prince Charming whose voice cracked so excruciatingly in the solo openings of every single performance. I was an alto when I auditioned and I was a baritone when I performed. Acting. Acting offers a unique opportunity to embed yourself into a different person's life, to inhabit another way of being in the world. The early 20th century actor, Konstantin Stanislavski, taught performers to embody mentally and emotionally wholly their role, exploring the character's motivations, drives, desires, and personality. The Stanislavski method, now known as method acting. Method actors lose themselves in the role. Supposedly, Heath Ledger locked himself in an apartment alone for a month, scribbling crazed rants in a journal and painting his face to prepare for his role as the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight. Jack Nicholson lived in a psychiatric ward for a month when preparing for the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Similarly, Paul has lost himself in Jesus. He has inhabited the person of Christ so deeply that he has the same mind as Christ. And today, I, I want to invite us to do the same, to inhabit Christ in a similar way, so that the peace of God might stand guard and sentry over our hearts. Over the past two weeks, we have been exploring Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Two weeks ago, Pete preached on the Christ hymn, in Philippians chapter 2, which exhorted the readers to take the same mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped after, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found human in human form, he humbled himself by become, becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this text forms the foundation of the whole book of Philippians on which Paul builds the rest of the short letter, because Paul sees his own life as a small reenactment of Christ, 
allowing for the life of Christ to live in him as glory, casting off the things that he took so much pride in before, and, and for him to live is Christ, and therefore dies gain. He loves this little church. They have been true partners in the gospel with Paul by sending financial support to him during his imprisonment, potentially in Rome. And Paul wants to invite them to follow him in this lifelong reenactment of the life of Jesus. Now, last week, we explored Philippians 3, 8 through 21, where Paul compared all things he used to know, to put his pride in, to trust in, to boast in, and to seek security in, to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Lord. And he concludes that everything else was scubala. It's all rubbish by comparison. But if one were to look at Paul's life, or even the life of Jesus for that matter, that would not make a whole lot of sense. A reasonable observer could note, you know, Paul, you were a respectable, well-trained Jew with Roman citizenship, and you had a lot going for you, and, and now you're kind of a wandering vagabond who is currently imprisoned because of the good news that you're preaching. What are you doing? But Paul has been transformed by the renewing of his mind and conformed to Christ Jesus. And it is, it, it completely changes the way that he understands his current circumstances. His view of value has been upended. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And so let's revisit our text from today. And remember, this is written by a man who was imprisoned. Paul writes in chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Context matters a lot, doesn't it? It's one thing to hear a person in a comfortable life and situation tell you, don't be anxious, but bring everything to the Lord. It's another thing to hear those same words from a man in prison. And Paul alludes to his imprisonment, even in this statement, I think. He writes that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God would not be beyond all understanding if it only occurred when things are going well in life. That indeed would be very understandable. No, when, when Paul says peace that stretches itself beyond the limits of what is rational, the sort of thing that makes people worship a crucified king or say that they are more than conquerors when they are poor and cast away. He speaks of a peace which rests outside of circumstances and life events that is external to us and yet near to us. The Holy Spirit, the power of Christ animating those who belong to him. 
And when we make known to God our anxieties, our desires, our thanksgivings, that divine peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word used for the guard is actually pretty rare in the New Testament. It only occurs four times. It refers to a military guard that stands over a place or even imprisons people. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the king of Damascus guarded the city, waiting to seize him. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses this word to describe how the law has held us captive until the day of Jesus. Of course, Paul is currently literally under guard in prison. But from this prison position, he calls the people, calls the people of Philippians to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And he can do this no matter the soldiers standing outside his room, because he has the Holy Spirit standing over his heart and mind. And all of this because he has entered into the life of Jesus. And I find it interesting that Paul, Paul's image, that peace, is not a thing to be protected. And I often think of my own peace as something like a glass of water perfectly perched and balanced on the edge of a table, ready to fall and shatter if disturbed or bumped. But in this passage... The peace of God that Paul talks about is the thing doing the guarding. God's peace is external, watching over hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, which is also a good reason to recognize this peace as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which accomplishes the Father's peace, divine shalom, in the world. It is that same Spirit that lives in our hearts and minds as believers. And in Colossians, Paul says to let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Again, a peace which acts on us rather than is accomplished through us. And Paul wants this church to follow his example. To follow him in reenacting Christ in his flesh. And even more than belonging to Christ, in his, even more belonging to Christ in his resurrection. That reenacting of Christ in their flesh through humility, patience, and love, will give them something truly precious in this life. Contentment. And Paul continues, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever circumstance, whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, let's take a step back and see how all of this comes together. One, in Philippians 2, 5 through 12, we see the pattern of the gospel, the mind of Christ, one that overcomes the world through self-emptying, self-giving love, and through this life, and eventually death, Christ is raised up and exalted by God. Two, in like manner, Paul has, like a great method actor, sought to embody completely and enter into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he has forsaken all the things that he used to find security and hope in, and instead trusted in knowing Jesus Christ. Three, 
by imitating Christ and finding his ultimate end in Christ. Paul has the peace of Christ which passes all understanding, standing guard over his heart, which allows him to be content in all circumstances, even when he is in prison. And four, he wants us who are mature to have the same mind and thus the same peace and contentment. From this place, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, all of this proves as relevant now as it ever has been. As of next Tuesday, it's hard to believe, but as of next Tuesday, I will have been your pastor for six whole months. And it has been a strange six months indeed. And as I've gotten to know so many of you, a lot of themes have emerged. We feel tired. Tired of being alone, or of never being alone, or of endless Zoom calls, or online learning, or supervising online learning. Most of us are tired. We feel unsettled. The world uh, we knew before is gone, and we don't know how firm the ground is under our feet. Will things ever return to normal? What does normal even mean? We feel desolated. This year in neighborhood groups, we are committing to holding space for everyone to voice their consolations and desolations. Examine. It's an Ignatian practice where you note the places you sensed God's absence and God's presence over the course of a period of time. But consolation and desolation can, only, can also mark whole seasons of life. And I suspect that many of us are actually living in a season of desolation. A time when, as a whole, the Lord feels distant and we feel disconnected. So what are we to do? As Christians, most of us know we are supposed to find our refuge in the Lord. We know that the answer is Jesus, and of course it is. But it's not that easy, is it? How do we avoid the anxiety that Paul talks about? Well, Paul can encourage us through this text today. First, the peace of Christ that we are seeking is not our own to make. The mindset we take on is not ours to produce. The attitude we form of our circumstances is not ours to create. The peace we seek is something that guards over our hearts. That is not something we do. We, we can't try harder to accomplish this. This is something we surrender to, and that surrender always roots itself in putting on Christ. Not adding Christ to our lives or asking for his help with our lives, but inhabiting Christ in our lives. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Like a great method actor who loses themselves in the role only to find themselves through it. And the Holy Spirit does the work of transforming our hearts and minds through his peace. That's the first. It's not ours. Second, Paul tells us what to do in very practical terms. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then... The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
when you feel the anxiety rising up in you, when your heartbeat quickens and your stomach clenches and you notice what is happening, take the time to name it to yourself. And this may sound silly, but notice what is happening to your body. Notice the mental feedback loops that you get caught in, the lies that repeat themselves in your mind and disaster scenarios that replay in your mind's eye. I call this having critical distance inside yourself, the ability to notice your own visceral and emotional responses in a matter-of-fact way. Notice what is happening and don't judge it or fight it or bemoan it, just name it. And then in naming it, speak that name to the Lord. About seven years ago, I realized that I was having mild forms of, I don't know if they were officially panic attacks, but something like that, set off by strange undealt with baggage from childhood. And I would push harder, and I, was, I would push harder, and I would try to be tough, and just to deal with it, and the relational results were absolutely disastrous. And I started to notice the physiological, physiological changes that would accompany these bouts of anxiety. And instead of fighting it, I just found a place to lie down, to close my eyes, and to breathe. And say, Lord, my heart is racing. I am irrationally anxious and angry about this thing. And I am giving this thing to you. Thank you for being a God who is with me and gives me the very breath of my lungs. I know you will provide what I need. And I'm not saying that this is a cure-all a cure fix, but it's practical. And it's exactly what Paul is speaking about. And it's what Jesus did. He went off to be by himself. He lifted his life up to the Father and submitted it to the Father's will. Speaking our fears, our hopes, our anxieties aloud to God, naming them and their physical effect on us, helps us also give them up and over to him. And it is in that moment of surrender, like Christ's surrender, that the Holy Spirit can work miracles in us. And third, it is that Christ-shaped place of surrender that Paul says he is content in all circumstances and that he can do all things through him who strengthens him. The Holy Spirit allows us to likewise do all things by which he means that you can find contentment in all things through Christ, who is our life. The hope that we have in Christ is not that Christ will allow us to overcome and change our circumstances all the time. It's that he has already overcome the world, and we are in him. In the words of Psalm 23, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of, the valley of, the shadow of death, not if, when, we will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with us. The peace of God that passes all understanding is guarding our hearts even when we walk through those dark valleys and times. And in like manner, we inhabit Christ in our lives, submitting ourselves to the shape of his life, inhabiting him, and what he has done for us. We likewise find that that peace is available to each and every one of us. It might not uh, be something that happens all at once, 
But when we name the things that are our anxieties and our fears, when we name the things that are happening in our life that disturb our peace, and we give them to God and surrender, we are indeed taking on the shape and mind of Christ. And in doing so, we invite contentment that is beyond what we are able to accomplish on our own power and strength. All because of Jesus.